Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Knife. We are absolutely thrilled to have Dr. Barbara Bass with us today. Uh, she's the chair of surgery at Houston Methodist Hospital and professor of surgery at Will Cornell. In addition to her clinical practice in uh, gastrointestinal and endocrine surgery, Dr. Bass has, le- has led a funded laboratory program in uh, gastrointestinal epithelial injury and repair. She completed her undergraduate degree at Tufts and her MD at the University of Virginia. She then completed her general surgery uh, residency at George Washington University with a research fellowship at Walter Reed. We are speaking with Dr. Bass in the um, uh, the end of her tenure as the current president of the American College of Surgeons. Dr. Bass, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Uh, so just to get started, um, we always like to hear a little bit about you, uh, where you grew up, where you came from, um, a little bit about uh, where you trained and how you, you came into uh, pursue surgery. Well, that can go on forever, but I'll try not to do that, of course. Um, I will say that first I'm a child of the 60s, and I'm also a child of uh, uh, a military family, and uh, so didn't really have fixed roots. My dad was a career naval officer and the and the nuclear submarine program. So we spent a lot of time uh, moving around as a young person, um, as a family, um, and also uh, lived in a world where uh, the key to your future success is education, no question about it. Uh, and, uh, and so we all, all four of my siblings and I, um, uh, took that very seriously and pursued our, our passions uh, via education. I think we also were raised in a family where um, um, your your sights, your future, were uh, not limited by uh, gender, by um, the perspective of race, although I happen to be Caucasian, um, and, and by uh, and by service. I mean, so the two things that my family really believed in was education and service to the community. So when I went to college, I really thought I was going to be a. Uh, I pretty early on found my bliss in. Uh, biology and science and thought for sure I'd be a scientist. Uh, I actually went to medical school when I went back to the University of Virginia to go to medical school. It was with the intent that actually I'd probably become a, um, a scientist. That in, the, in those days, in the, by then the mid-70s, um, medical school was an area where you could, you know, the early days of translational science, it was sort of a place where you could do science that was um, likely to be uh, translatable to human health in a more direct fashion than would be, say, uh, you know, the, the, the more conventional scientific tracks in academia. So I went to medical school with that anticipation. And, and it was interesting going to UVA in those days. It's, uh, I, to this day, I'm in, incredibly grateful for my experience there. Uh, I think it is an uh, a incredible institution with a great academic uh, legacy and, and a place that really does um, encourage free thinking and uh, exploration and innovation. That said, it was also a place in the 70s where it wasn't quite clear what they were going to do with the uh, young women that were entering the medical school. And and even back then, even back then had uh, interviews with uh, some of the old guard that just blatantly said there's no place for girls in medical school. It was it was pretty fascinating. But anyway, but in the end, um, obviously, I went there and uh, and had a, just an extraordinary um uh, educational experience in medical school and loved every day of it. Um, but I did go with the intent to be a scientist. And so my early, uh, my early uh, uh, mentors, um, most importantly, were um, people that were scientists in the young science then of genetics. It was human genetics. It was a pediatric geneticist, a guy by the name of Thaddeus Kelly, who was a fabulous, fabulous uh, state-of-the-art scientist at the time in genetics, which was really kind of karyotype, you know, and, and phenotype. You looked at children and said, well, this must be a genetic abnormality. And we'd look at their chromosomes, their karyotypes, which is all we had, and and a little bit of proteomics. And that was kind of it. And and I was all set. I mean, I had applied to pediatric residencies, and I'd met Victor McCusick, sort of one of the founding fathers of gen- human genetics at um, Hopkins. I had wonderful mentorship there in that discipline. And then, like, as you will talk to many, many uh, women surgeons, and I, perhaps this happens to men as well, but it's, I think it, I certainly hear it more from the women. My last rotation was surgery. And boom, it was just a, 
it was disastrous in the sense that uh, all of a sudden I discovered I'm one of them. You know, I think like them. I act like them. I have the same uh, passion for this. Uh, it, it just was uh, like an earthquake. And um, and I was just immediately drawn to the discipline. So that's what I decided I would be. But I'd also figure out, I'd figure out how can you be a scientist and a surgeon at the same time. And fortunately, there were lots of models for that, uh, in, in both at University of Virginia and nationally um, in that discipline. But to get my way to surgery, of course, I had to meet a couple of women surgeons because there were certainly none at UVA then. And, and thankfully, the program director there, who was a wonderful man, early transplant pioneer named Dr. Les Rudolph, pulled me into his office. Um, and actually, the chairman of the Department of Surgery declined to speak with me, even though I was one of the, you know, AOA top in the class kind of kids. But anyway, um, that's uh, water under the bridge was the times. And um, and he said, well, you must meet some if you're going to be a surgeon, you have to meet some women surgeons. And I said, well, I would love to. Where are they? <laughs> and so he sent me. Uh, he said, well, there's two women you must meet. You must meet Dr. Katherine Anderson and you must meet Dr. Olga Jonasson. And of course, I had never heard of either one of them. Um, and um, but I very shortly thereafter did have the uh, uh, honor to go to Washington, D.C., which was just a few miles from Virginia and met Dr. Kathy Anderson. So she was the first woman surgeon I ever met in my life. And she became at that point, uh, you know, sort of an instant. Oh, my gosh. How do you become Dr. Anderson? And secondly, uh, was one of the people that uh, led me along the way during my residency was one of the reasons that. GW was a good place for me, Dr. Anderson and actually Dr. Um, Randolph. There were many others that were there that were very important to me. But it, it, I've often thought back to the fact how ironic it was that the first woman surgeon I ever met was Dr. Kathy Anderson, who then, of course, many years later went on to become the first woman president of the American College of Surgeons. And here I am now, the president of the American College of Surgeons. So it's an incredibly crazy little small world story. But but those kind of influences matter. I think there's no question those influences matter. And then I went on and trained and I, I, I discovered I love surgery and I uh, really found my real passion in, um, the, in as, as a general surgeon. Back then, we really were all general surgeons. So we did GI and we did endocrine and we did breast and we did uh, oncology. We did all of that stuff back then. It was really wonderful. And particularly as I practiced for a while in the VA healthcare system, you really do have the opportunity both to serve the veterans, one of my favorite group in the world, as well as be a, a true general surgeon, at least back then we could. And during my training, though, I, I also had that very formative and continued experience of, of um, doing my, you know, furthering my ambition in or my passion in science by spending two years at the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research which many may not know, but uh, for many years uh, was an incredibly important scientific um, enterprise and still is. Um, but especially uh, coming out of the Vietnam era, Vietnam War era, many, many, many academic surgical leaders spent time at Walter Reed um, doing research relative to uh, what broadly would be described as translational research and injury, but we at the time were focused on things like mucosal injury and repair and uh, reperfusion injury. That was sort of the hot science of the time. And I just had a wonderful experience there, but also, you know, had the privilege of to get that job. I had to join the Army. So I did. And I was a captain in the Army and had just the most incredible set of experiences, both personally gratifying to be in the service, also to then incredibly inform my service to the veterans thereafter. But also just to kind of realize this is uh, an important part of service to our community. So that's sort of a long way to say that's how I got to surgery. But I did get there by, I think the theme is serendipity. Um, you know, sort of there's an underlying theme of science and disease and taking care of patients and all those kind of things. But, but the actual pathway proved to be serendipitous. It was also framed by the fact that my... Um, my husband was uh, in Washington, D.C., uh, in law school at that time, and uh, and we have always, therefore, stayed rooted uh, close to family to provide that personal infrastructure, my parents, my mother-in-law, my all those people, um, to, to foster the support for the family, my family, um, that really uh, has allowed many of the professional goals that I've been able to achieve be feasible by virtue of building that personal infrastructure rooted in family. So there's there's compromise, there's uh, serendipity, there's a bit of planning, but um, but in the end, uh, 
you know, a most gratifying career um, all the way from the beginning. You're a professor at Cornell, but you're also a chair of surgery in Houston. So can you give us a little more insight into what you're, uh, what you're doing on a weekly basis and how you're bouncing back and forth? Yes, that's a, that's a real common question that comes up since I made this move to Houston Methodist Hospital. Now, almost, almost 14 years ago, I became chair at this institution, which was at the time undergoing a primary realignment with uh, different academic partners. Um, it's a bit of a long story, and I won't go into all of it, but fundamentally, while Cornell, uh, the medical college in New York, is, um, is our primary one of several though, but our primary academic affiliate. What does that mean? It means that my academic, that, that we are, our institutions are aligned in terms of some, you know, some aspects of being both big powerhouse institutional uh, academic healthcare delivery machines. So they're New York Presbyterian Hospital, we're Houston Methodist Hospital, we're, um, we're both, uh, you know, both thousand bed, hundred operating room, kind of big, huge uh, academic medical centers. Um, we share a lot of, and of cultural aspects that are the same in terms of clinical, uh, you know, advancing clinical care, innovation, education, research. Um, but our faculty appointments just happen to be at Cornell. Um, we have some, you know, we've got some cross-pollination with um, our faculty in terms of uh, research. Dr. Nicolasi and I, for example, have done some work on uh, some quality studies uh, with some of our in-between fellows that go back and forth. Um, but and, and the students, the Wild Cornell students um, will come and do clerkship rotations with us, for example. Uh, but in all honesty, it's an academic affiliation. It's my academic appointment, as all of my faculty have uh, their primary academic school uh, appointments with Weill Cornell, but we also have appointments at Texas A&M, which is our newer affiliate, and others as well. So it's a, it's really, um, I don't go back and forth, um, but we do uh, share at the institutional level um, uh, sort of programmatic goals together. And I think it really it was launched at the time when this institution was just reforming its uh, its academic affiliations after a, a split from its prior uh, affiliates. Um, and I think that you know it, it served us it served us well in many respects. And there are areas that we excel in, and areas that we can partner in that I think are are meaningful. But it's not like I'm there all the time or that they're here all the time or whatever. So it's a, a little little tricky to explain, but um, it's it works for us in the sense that when I took this job, let's say, for example, you know, I have to be a professor of surgery. I'm sorry, but I'm not going to take a job where I'm not going to be a professor of surgery. It's core of who I am. I believe in education and research and clinical care as all core missions to my professional life, as do the now almost 70 faculty I've hired here at Houston Methodist Hospital since I arrived here. So it's sort of our emblem that we are committed to those three missions as vital core missions. And my institution, my Houston Methodist Hospital also is as well. In the meanwhile, over these 13, 14 years, we've built, you know, like all leading academic medical center departments of surgery, we have built many research programs and research institutes and laboratory studies and our own residencies and fellowships here at Houston Methodist. We're not, um, we're not an, a, a subordinate, we're an affiliate of Weill Cornell and the New York Presbyterian system. I don't know if that helps you or not, but that's, that's the way it works. Um, so recently uh, it came up uh, in the women surgeon ACS community that should we be discussing uh, issues of gender disparities, um, you know, in forums that are mostly uh, women-based, or should we be having these uh, discussions where men are involved and like not not to segregate these discussions and hold them in like you know much larger general forums than just women-specific forums? What's your take on it? Yeah, well, I I can I. Um First of all, I believe in open dialogue for the most part, um, but it also requires that. I mean, I think there are still special, um, not special. There are unique um, challenges. I don't want to call them issues, but unique um, burdens. I am going to call them burdens that women in gender disparate uh, professions all face. And um, 
I don't care whether it's surgery or the law or high powered business, whatever it happens to be, there are unique uh, features of being a professional in those gender disparate um, disciplines that that women face, whether it's and it's not all life work life balance. It's actually still abundant residual implicit bias. Um, it is uh, the expectation it's, it's, it goes as it permeates as deeply as what do you know, what does your supervisor, what is your chair, what is your division head expect from you? Well, they we want them to expect the max from all of us, you know, regardless of whether you're a wife, a mother, a, you know, a, a, a son, a father, whatever. I mean, we want you to expect the most from us for a professional life. So I think there's still a place for women to gather um, without the direct um, involvement of men in some of those discussions. There is strength in, I believe there is still strength in gender-focused career advancement discussions, pathways, sharing, role modeling, mentorship. There is still a need for gender-based, I don't want to say exclusivity, but uh, um, I, I guess I could say exclusivity. I mean, people that kind of you know, have walked the walk, uh, have run the gauntlet, who will share, who will support, who will understand the, the issues. But um, I think when we get to things like um, the discussion, of course, I've, I've been following the discussion on the communities as well. And I, uh, you know, a few, few days ago, I posted a piece about, um, about the upcoming uh, Violence Against Women Act, which is uh, facing um, renewal in the Senate right now. And, and I, I, actually thought, well, is this is this political or is this a healthcare related issue? Do we want everybody to weigh in on this or not? And obviously I think it's a this is a healthcare issue that we as women and men surgeons who care for injured patients often as a victim as victims of intimate partner violence, an initiative that I've started this year at the college, uh, that's very pertinent to us. Um, and I think that we ought to you know I think that we ought to include all um, everyone as a voice in those discussions. Um, I think there are ways that we can segregate ourselves and we um, and have some of those private discussions. I think that's pertinent. Now, when you come to a public forum like our American College of Surgeons communities, you know, that's just one more social media platform like all the others. And as soon as we I think it would be uh, an error, in all honesty, to exclude uh, voices from those. Um, my perspective, my spell on that is, hey, it sort of tells you what they're thinking, some of those people, you know, <laughs> sort of a reminder, yeah, hey, we still have some work to do here, you know. So I don't believe in, um, I don't believe in excluding voices from public fora, discussion boards, things like that. Um, should there be terms of uh, engagement? Of course there should be. Um, can we, you know, do, do we want to try and eliminate whatever you call that, we're trolling, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, we, we certainly don't need to tolerate that in a professional discussion group like our communities on the American College of Surgeons. But I don't think we need to separate them based on race, gender, religion, what, you know, whatever element of diversity happens to be, um, happens to be pertinent to a discussion. Um, and I do think that actually, if you are someone that cares about these issues, when you kind of see how others step in and reveal their colors, whatever it happens to be, that's informative. You know, that's informative. It's a dis- difference of opinion. But depending on what your perspective is, it's important to know that's how people out there are thinking. And uh, so I, I don't believe in exclusion in those publicly posted kind of community discussions. There are other ways in which I do believe in um, some element of separation for career development, support, advancement, mentorship, um, all those different things. But there are other venues for that than excluding people from American College of Surgeons discussion boards. Dr. Bass, I was wondering, uh, thank you for those insights, by the way, but uh, I was wondering if you could just uh, reflect back on the the past year as the uh, president of the ACS um, what were some particular challenges that you faced and, and what things are you most proud of for the past year? Yeah, I think um, I, I think there are many, many uh, challenges that face the American College of Surgeons and things that I personally have uh, faced. I think one of it is uh, one of the most uh, interesting things that we have as an organization um, struggled with is kind of to find what are the boundaries of our of our uh, 
relationship to the the lives of our fellows you know where what what should what where do we draw the line between something that is relevant to healthcare and surgery and all those kind of things and uh, those other elements that you know are societal issues that certainly impact on our patients to in some degree or another um, but are they really pertinent to our role as a professional surgical organization. Uh, examples of that would be, for example, the gun violence uh, issues which have come up over the year. Um, we've had debate in years past about, and, and even a bit this year, obviously about some of the political uh, dynamics in uh, in Washington D.C. We've had we've had, uh, you know, obviously we're a big organization. We have people with a lot of different opinions and. Uh, so it's been informative, I think, to kind of see that that disparity, that uh, division that lives within all of us um, in the, as fellows in the college. And, and I just wish we could, and I think part of the challenge has been to try to advance beyond our personally held intense opinions about these things and try to seek the middle on things. And I think we've had several aspects where we've really tried very hard to seek the middle this year. Uh, um, gun violence, uh, intimate partner violence, um, the um, uh, even the maintenance of certification issue that you know went off the tracks here for a little while, but uh, seems to be heading back into a more acceptable uh, uh, platform. Um, so we, this is actually one of those advantages of those communities. We kind of do see at least what the vocal segment of our of our fellows are thinking and and trying to. You know, navigate our way through that is important. I think that the college is a, you know, we have 80,000 members. Um, we have many young people. We have quite a few retired people. We have international fellows. Um, I think the college um, has an incredible portfolio of tools to um, improve one's satisfaction as a surgeon, one's practice as a surgeon, one's knowledge as a surgeon. I think our biggest barrier, and honestly, is to, to make it clear to our fellows um, what we have available to them. Um, and I think, uh, so communication is always is always a struggle. I, and I, I personally, when I look at the college, I, I look at it as, you know, how have I used or benefited from the college over my career? Um, and it's been enormous. It's it's just contributed enormously. My first ever little research grant was one of those faculty awards from the American College of Surgeons. That was a, my first step in the door with the college. Uh, actually, even before that, the, the chapter, the Washington, D.C. chapter gave me my first traveling scholarship to go watch Dean Warren do uh, this, this still real shunts. That's how old I am. And um, I think that uh, that if, if you figure out how to um, engage with the college um, from those special programs, it's just extraordinary. But you can also do it as just in terms of a, the educational tools that we have available. And I do think that's kind of the core, core, core value that we bring to our memberships is the educational products. Um, and they are extraordinary, extraordinary educational materials in, in that division that's now led by Dr. Ajit Sachdeva. But I also think besides education, if you can every once in a while get to our clinical congress, uh, one of the things that being engaged in very positive, active, energetic, professional organization like the colleges is if you get there every couple of years or four years or whatever it happens is, you're going to realize it, it, it sort of gives you a little resuscitation to your to the choices you made. You run into all those people you trained with. You run into colleagues from around the country that are you know, facing the same challenges, uh, getting the same buzz out of things. It's just a resuscitating professional moment to go and just learn a bunch of stuff very intensely for two or three days at a time. Um, so I, I think that's one important thing that professional organizations can do for us. They actually, yes, they teach us, but they also give us that little breather, that three, four days without the everyday, every minute, demands that come with this this profession we've chosen and to reconnect with the people that formed you that act like you that uh, you know that uh, are your friends I mean we are we have great friendships in this um, in this profession so I'd say the challenges that the challenge the biggest challenges were those boundary things um, some of the greatest rewards have been um, 
one of the things as, as president, you know, you're really not responsible for policy. You're not responsible for daily operations. That's the board of governors, the board of regents. I've done all that long ago. And, and so I was sort of called back to be president. And it's just an incredible honor. And you are the ambassador for the college nationally and around the world. And I think the greatest reward I've had, and I wish everybody could have this year to tell you the truth, is traveling to meet surgeons wherever they happen to be. Uh, one of my most memorable groups was the chapter that includes Idaho, Wyoming, and Montana. I mean, this is these are surgeons who are few and far between, working alone in, in um, providing incredibly sophisticated, forward kind of surgical care in environments of practices of one or two or three, and maybe each one of those states has a, a bigger place, uh, but no residents, no students, you know, all these things that in many of those places where you provide advanced complex care, you actually have those, I don't want to call them just worker bees, but they're learners and they are the nuts and bolts that keep our big academic centers running. Uh, so these surgeons are doing this all by themselves. They were just an amazing, an amazing bunch. Uh, I've traveled uh, and, and I've seen that in many of our chapter meetings around the country where people that are particularly practicing, not in those sophisticated urban environments where you got everything, but those other places. And and we all kind of care about the same things. We all care about doing the best we can. We all care about staying at the top of our game. We all care about uh, taking good care of our patients. We care about our practice environment. We care. We, we all face the same challenges. We're all wondering how did the hospitals get in charge of everything? Um, how did, uh, you know, how did, how did our, um, how did we, um, where, where do we, uh, let me see what I'm trying to say here. How do we, um, how do we make the value of what we provide to our communities and to our hospitals and to our students and our residents as we train the next generation? How do we make those kind of commitments that we do every day, day in and day out without, specific compensation for those things. How do we make the public understand that? And how do we make the payers understand that? And um, so I think it's, um, we, we all face the same challenges. And internationally, um, the, the most refreshing thing of all has been to see that you know, surgeons all around the world think the same. We all kind of have the, that same passion for excellence, that same commitment to patients, the same, you know, we are, we are a unified group. We like each other. We hang in there together. We're, you know, we fight the same battles. It's just extraordinary to see how similar surgeons are all around the world. And for me personally, in my travels around the world, I've always made an effort to find the women surgeons that are, that are there. Um, it's not always easy to find them and to gather them because in many respects, they are, um, they, they, as a gender in this profession are, kind of about where we were when I started in this business, you know, 30, 40 years ago. There's, they're few and far between. They're, they're constantly at risk of being derailed because of um, uh, not just implicit bias, but explicit bias. The notion that in many places, if you want to be a surgeon and you're a woman, you, you have to forego for sure ever having children. That's just not compatible with a surgical profession career. And that's not okay. Now, the good news is, is that uh, around the country, around the world, medical schools are now 60 to 70 percent women. And so now this last more recently, as you travel to these international places, the question is not, well, you know, we can't possibly have women be surgeons because of all these things. They say, yikes, you've got to tell us how we're going to encourage women to be surgeons, because if we don't have women going to surgery. We're not going to have surgeons and we're certainly not going to get the best because the women in these countries are really at the top of their classes. So they're now scrambling to figure out how do you help organize those women to have those extra bits of, um, of you know, peer support. Um, how do you how do you recognize if you're the man, the men, how do you recognize how your presumptions about, you know, dual dual roles for women in surgery. How do you um, get past that uh, so that you can actually create careers that are going to be attractive um, for women at, that can be successful? And the, the dialogue is not about are they smart enough or capable enough or have the stuff. It's all about how do you, in those countries especially, how do you create a professional environment that allows them to both be women, mothers, wives, 
whatever, um, and be surgeons. Um, and the other, the other major piece that is important is to recognize that, well, we have women in leadership roles in our country now, and we happen to have sort of a triumvirate of visible leaders at the college right now. Um, we're, the, the, the success of a relative few does not mean that we have overcome all of our, all of our uh, barriers that, that still exist for women to advance to their full potential in leadership roles. But it's getting, but it's, it's getting better, and these, these successes are visible. Um, and I think that um, women around the world are just kind of beginning to network and become uh, recognized that they, you know, they have the same passion, the same commitment to education, the same drive that the men do. They just got to work out these other pieces. And bringing them together over this last year, uh, from the places I visited, from Brazil to Malaysia to Mozambique to Japan, um, has just been so rewarding. Um, and and I think I've had a meaningful impact to them as well, which has been really personally very gratifying. Now we're going to move on to our uh, what we call the dissection of the day, where we really wanted to talk to you about um, the Houston Methodist Institute for Technology, Innovation, and Education, MITEI. Can you tell us more about how it was started, what was the inspiration behind it, and what all you do there, including we're very interested in the surgeon flight simulator. Yes. Okay. So Mighty is, you know, I got to say, I consider it like my my baby. I mean, it's and it's really not fair to say that because so many people have been instrumental to the to the development of this incredible program. Mighty stands for the Methodist Institute for Technology, Innovation, and Education. And when I was recruited here to this hospital to build this new academic department of surgery within our four walls as an academic medical center, one of the things that I particularly wanted to do was to leverage the new science. And really 15 years ago, 14 years ago, it was a relatively new science of simulation-based education into, um, um, the, um, into, into surgical training. Now, uh, at that time, I was just finishing up my uh, my term as chair of the American Board of Surgery, uh, and I'd also spent a fair amount of time uh, uh, as a governor, and uh, maybe I was on the regents, I can't remember, but uh, and I've always had a real sharp interest and focus on education, and it occurred to me that, you know, we're, there were many opportunities that we could do this better. Um, and so one of the things that I, when I was recruited here, I said, I want to build a state-of-the-art simulation-based education center. And we're going to call it MITEI, the Methodist Institute for Technology and Innovation. I still remember when I pitched it to the board, there was sort of a chuckle in the room. My board kind of went, yeah, okay. And within about three weeks, MITEI was a, is a, was a part of our language here at Houston Methodist. And it became a, uh, a, rallying, um, a rallying point that would really be a, a way for us to distinguish our space in education. Now, I also was interested, I, you know, I've always, I've, I've been a program director for many years. I'm not any longer, of course, but I, I mean, for probably 15 years of my career, I was a program director in general surgery. And I really, I, I think it's one of the most important things we as surgeons do is to raise our replacements. And, um, and I think we do it primarily by that incredibly dense, immersive experience they have by being a resident. I mean, anybody who's a surgeon here knows, you know, I, ha I have a couple years of my life. I don't ever remember being out of the hospital, but boy, was I learning a lot. And boy, was I, you know, really becoming a surgeon in that dense experiential learning thing with faculty, you know, available and senior residents. It's, it's almost, you're almost smothered by so much education, in fact. Um, but it's really good. And the product is fabulous, I think, despite our occasional anxiety about things. But I, I think I'm very proud of our trainees. And, and in all honesty, you know, I always say my best year of my residency was my first year in practice at the VA, right? The first year you're really done, that's when you really, you know, you really finish your training or two or three or five. But I was actually worried at that point, not so much about um, the residents. Uh, we do use simulation-based, the standard simulation-based tools. I was really worried about surgeons in practice who, um, who 10 years, 15, 20 years out actually, you know, haven't had any opportunity structured opportunity to come back and safely acquire new skills and technologies. That coupled to the incredible pace of advancement in technology uh, was really the driver behind MITEI and the focus of it on a, uh, a simulation-based training center, not for, yes, for our residents, but not primarily, yes, for medical students, but not primarily, but really focused on 
healthcare providers in practice. And that, that makes it a relatively unique uh, simulation-based training center. It also has a large R&D component, too, to it as well. So how do we develop um, the tools in regards to the big trends in innovation and surgery, those being image guidance, um, virtual reality, or, or, or enhanced, you know, uh, augmented reality, um, minimal access, computer-aided, whether we call it robotic or not, it's basically computer-aided surgery. And that is part of our undeniable future going forward in surgery. And, and I also, at that time, was looking at our experience that we'd had over these last 20 years of my practice at how we'd previously disseminated new technologies. And almost inevitably, it came with some period of patient harm. In other words, way too much patient-based learning, whether it was the introduction of laparoscopy or endovascular surgery or computer-aided surgery, whatever it is. Each time we have a little wave of patient injury as we, you know, prematurely without sufficient training have introduced and disseminated new technologies. So the primary goal here when I got here to Mighty was to play, build a place that would be a home base. And I love to see people come back year after year for a specific training event to come here and safely in a non-patient based, simulation based learning environment, acquire a new skill to add to their repertoire. Um, and so that we can, when things are right, disseminate those better technologies. We know that there are certain technologies that are better for patients. Minimal access procedures are better for patients, period. You know, uh, once you get there, once you get there and they are going to cost less because people are going to have fewer complications. There's a whole wave of things and we're never going to stop that progress. But the trick is to make sure that we disseminate them safely. So Mighty was built with that in mind. And um, it uh, to date, we've had over 50,000 healthcare providers through and in, in different programs. Uh, it's comprised of a center that has about, you know, it has it has many wonderful things. First, it's beautiful. It's an embedded in our research institute as well, which is an important, important factor. So we have many collaborative programs with our computational scientists, with bioengineers, with um, uh, health, uh, health um, services researchers. So, so it's not just the education center, it's a research center as well, which lets us really focus on lots of things that are important to that dissemination step. But the technologies, basically, you know, these are fully trained surgeons. We're not starting with, you know, medical students or residents. These are skilled surgeons and practice every day who come and spend from, you know, depending on what they're coming to learn. They're coming to learn a very specific additional modality to add to their repertoire, um, whether that's uh, a new device or whether that's a new procedure in the chest or the belly or whatever it happens to be. So we, we have a pretty, pretty great starting part point for many of these surgeons. And it's just that incremental add-on that they're looking for. So we can, with fairly high efficiency, given the quality of the environment we have, the quality of the faculty that we can recruit, the, um, the, the attention to curricula design and um, the tools, we can pretty quickly get this stuff into someone's hands. Um, so, and, and they can get through that initial fumbling in a safe, non-patient-based learning environment. That's the premise behind this. And uh, we have, we train of that 50,000 or so, about 14,000, almost 15,000 of them are surgeons in practice who have come here for a specific add-on um, add piece to their repertoire. Many come back once a year for something new, whether it's uh, you know laparoscopic this or thoracoscopic that. Um, and it's, uh, it's just a, a better, safer way to do it. And do we have a randomized controlled trial that says, hey, it's better if you do it this way as opposed to just going to the patient? No, but we certainly have abundant experience to say that training cannot hurt you and, uh, and certainly will make you, make you safer uh, and more confident. Um, so I think that's, that's the premise behind it. Um, we have many, many ways. So we have the surgeons that have come. We also do boot camps for almost every kind of advanced surgical trainee that there is once a year. So the vascular surgeons, the cardiovascular surgeons, the, you know, the um, groups from SAGES. We have so many, uh, the SSO, we have so many groups that will come here and the breast program, for example, will come here and uh, take their fellows through uh, simulated environments, which has really been, I think, ways to 
upstage, um, you know, a, a, a trainee's preparedness for that advanced training they're going to get during their fellowship. Um, we also do a lot of nursing. Uh, we do our respiratory therapists. We do uh, imaging. We do all kinds of groups up there. Uh, we've also used it as a place um, that has very directly served the needs of our hospital here and the medical center. But, for example, when we shift vendors from one surgical and a mechanical set to another, we'll have the entire uh, place set up to ha allow surgeons to go up and, you know, examine and utilize in a non-patient-based environment those subtle differences between the devices. I mean, even a change in a stapler, as we all know, can be a can be a, a disruptive technology. So how do we move that to a space where that doesn't happen in a patient's pelvis? It happens, you know, in a model and mighty. So it's, it's really facilitated our our direct care here. We used it as a place to teach um, our staff how to gown and I can't remember the name for degowning uh, during the Ebola uh, episode. We had we trained our staff in how to safely garb and you know put on the garb and then take it off. Um, so we've used it several times for um, for those kind of direct patient care training of our staff. Now, we still have some gaps. Uh, for example, how do we know if you came here and trained in thoracoscopic, uh, you know, uh, uh, esophagectomy or computer-aided something or other? How do we know that you actually got it? Well, we don't really know for sure yet. Um, we have, um, you know, we've tried things like thermal facial mapping to kind of look for that fluency of measurement. And we have uh, we have a, a bunch of biosensors that we're developing to kind of look to see how hard are you having to think, how fluent are you with that that uh, utilization of um, uh, a technology. So we, we're we're working on it, but uh, we haven't quite uh, we haven't quite got that assessment of you know core competency achieved. We also haven't necessarily, and this is a this is a goal for everyone. We haven't had as much success in uh, measuring adopt safe adoption of these uh, new technologies into a surgeon's practice. Once they get back there, they're pretty busy and it's uh, tough to get them to report back to us. Uh, Dr. Brian Duncan, who um, is our medical director at Mighty and just a, a magnificent uh, educational uh, leader. Um, actually, he was my junior resident, my research fellow, my, uh, I gave him his first job. Uh, so was when, when the concept of Mighty came along, and by then he had, uh, he was working at the University of Miami. And by then I said, there's only one person who I know I need to get here to really be the, the uh, mover and shaker of Mighty, and that's Brian Duncan. And he's done that magnificently. He's actually got a wonderful uh, telepresence, um, telementoring uh, program that he set up in a trial-based fashion for the surgeons that come here from relatively smaller rural communities that are still in the wave of adopting laparoscopic colectomy. Um, so he's, um, he's got, you know, some telepresence to assist surgeons when they go back home to their centers where they don't have faculty walking around who can drop in and help them. You know, how do you really help those people that are out there by them, their little lonesomes, you know, as, as practicing surgeons, that's the group that we really want to target and we really think have the greatest opportunity to, to benefit from this. So we have that program going. And um, it's really, it's, uh, you know, it's a, I view it very much as a prototype facility. You know, this is not, I can't say this is, we, this is the best thing in the world, but I think it really has made a difference in safe adoption of many advanced procedures um, for many thousands of surgeons in this country. Is it perfect? No, but it's a prototype. And, um, and I think when I look at it, um, we need probably five or six things at the scope and scale of MITEI to, uh, to safely assist with that retooling process. And we do, you know, general thoracic, uh, cardiovascular, orthopedic, uh, urologic. I mean, we're, a, we're not a discipline-specific uh, program. We even do ophthalmology. Um, every once in a while, we'll have a course in ophthalmology. So um, the goal is to really make it kind of uh, a universally uh, useful uh, program. And I think our young trainees that are coming along now really kind of get it, too. I mean, they're raised using simulation as sort of fundamental part tasks of learning new procedures. And so that group feels very comfortable in a simulation environment. Uh, uh, and again, the other interesting thing has been with this. Every once in a while, we'll have a surgeon that will come and 
you know, want to do something and like they come to this beautiful place and there's faculty and it's, you know, like all the stuff, all the bells and whistles you can imagine. And they and they find it. Yes, it's nice to learn a new skill, but they'll also say, wow, that was just so resuscitating. You know, I had time away from my practice. Somebody tried really hard to teach me something. I haven't had somebody try to teach me something so hard in 20 years, you know, so it's got a resuscitating kind of reaffirming um, aspect to it as well. Everybody that comes to Mighty has fun, you know, and really enjoys their experience uh, as a learning experience. Uh, we would now like to move on to our next segment. Uh, we call it the tips and tricks. Um, and today uh, we would like to use the subject of uh, breast abscess. Um, it's oh. been a, it's sometimes very challenging to uh, manage these uh you know, emergency consults, and um, the problem seems straightforward, but, you know, still has some nuances. So my first question in this uh, segment for you would be, what are the risk factors for uh, developing spontaneous breast abscess? Yeah, well, that, there's several groups that are uh, at risk. The most um, prominent is the, the most common is the woman who is uh, actively uh, Lactating nursing women, they can certainly develop areas of mastitis, which can progress to abscess. Um, we usually don't see those that are just the common mastitis because the the um, you know their obstetricians are usually very uh, forward in um, you know massage and and antibiotics and all those um, efforts that will try to uh, inter intercept that. When you get to the point of having an abscess, that's you know, that's then then we'll often see them at that point. Um, the patients that have the periovelar mastitis, I mean, that's, a, again, sort of an unusual cohort, but those that develop that, that periductal uh, periovelar abscess cohort is typically, we don't really quite understand what their risk factors are, but they're often, they're almost always are smokers. They're kind of youngish, you know, the 20 to 40 or 30 to 50 kind of age group, um, and they're a particular cohort. Um, and then oftentimes um, there are women that have the, the very large, heavy breasts that develop not just not breast abscesses per se, but they often will present to us as such. But the uh, inframammary and uh, um, the mammary crease kind of uh, infected sebaceous cyst things, which actually are not really breast abscesses, but they often present to us as such. So how do you determine um, who gets the aspiration and when? how many times you have to do the aspiration before you um, proceed to an IND? Yeah, I think some of that is guided by a clinical circumstance. I mean, for the most, I mean, it's it's pretty rare, to see, at least in my experience, uh, pretty rare to see a patient that presents with, you know, severe sepsis from a breast abscess. I got to say, it's the exception of a transplant patient with end-stage renal disease, with you know, all these other modalities of risk, that I've, I, they rarely are have systemic sepsis. So it's a, you know, yes, you use antibiotics, but uh, we, you know, that the literature would say that um, drainage these, draining these with percutaneous uh, approaches is successful most of the time. And uh, in our practice, we actually will persist, uh, you know, we'll, we'll start with an aspiration with as large of a needle we can under ultrasound guidance and uh, try to get as, as much of a drainage, a complete drainage as possible, treat with antibiotics. And um, most of those patients are going to, are going to do okay. They really are. Um, if they, if they, fall apart again, um, then, you know, we'll, we usually would try again and leave a little drain in the cavity as opposed to just having aspirated it. Um, and every once in a while, fairly rarely, does it actually present with a, uh, does it progress to the point where you, you're not able to manage these with percutaneous drainage. Uh, again, depending on the age of the patient, it's important to rule out malignancy in these things to get uh uh, to, to make sure that follow-up breast imaging is uh, is performed, but um, you certainly can't do mammography when one has an active abscess. The other exception to this, though, is the the periareolar abscesses that that little right at the edge of the, which is related to uh, you know an infection in the subareolar ducts. Those can be very persistent and uh, can end up with a, a little fistula um, that uh, is you know quite worrisome to, and bothersome to the patient. Um, 
those, you know, most of us will give one shot at a drainage uh, and, and antibiotics, but failing that, you really need to fix the, the pathology there. So at the moment when, you know, if it comes back a second time, let it clear up and then go back and do a subareolar duct excision um, to eliminate the primary cause there for those patients. Is there a specific uh, population? I know you mentioned age. Are there any other factors or um, any other um, things that we should keep in mind that would raise your concern for malignancy? And is there any role for biopsy at all, either of the access capsule or any other biopsy? Yeah. Well, I suppose if you, you know, on the rare occasion when you actually have to get to the operating room to surgically drain an abscess, and that does, I mean, it happens, you know, I I want to say it's uncommon, but it's relatively, at least in our experience here, we have wonderful breast imaging and sort of aggressive people that are willing to put big catheters and abscesses and, uh, you know, under image guidance. It's a relatively uncommon event. Certainly, um, the features of the uh, of the um, abscess would be considered, um, and uh, certainly the the you know a, a a bad inflammatory carcinoma with central necrosis can present with something that looks sort of like a breast abscess, but in all honesty, um, you know, they usually also have bulky adenopathy and uh, more extensive skin changes than you see with uh, abscess. So being aware, I think just you, you certainly have to keep that in the back of your mind, particularly for um, the women that are, you know, 40 plus, 50 plus years old. Um, but for all of these, you know, except for the very young with periareal or abscesses, you need to you have to do follow up imaging after um, after the process is resolved enough that allow uh, breast imaging, you know, it's age 35 to 40, start with a mammogram, a diagnostic mammogram and see, rule out uh, some other associated problem. But it doesn't hurt when you're there to take a piece of tissue. But generally, um, I got to say, it's an exceedingly rare way to find a cancer. Um, In fact, if you're worried about the inflammatory process, you're more likely, if you think it could be an inflammatory carcinoma, you're much more you'll much more likely get a diagnosis if you do a, a punch biopsy of the adjacent uh, edematous peau d'orange looking skin than by taking a piece of necrotic tissue from the from the uh, you know the area that appears to be an abscess. We always learn about with mastitis that you counsel the uh, pregnant woman that she can continue or postpartum woman that she can continue breastfeeding. Um, is it the same with the breast abscess? Is there any difference in how you manage um, these abscesses during pregnancy and in that postpartum period? The only, yeah, you need to be aware of what antibiotics are um, being utilized and we'll often tell people to go ahead and um, pump from that breast and discard the milk if they're on the antibiotic that is troublesome. But they on all honesty, I'm going to say I look to the obstetricians for advice in terms of uh, antibiotic choices for these. Um, and um, there's there's really there's no reason that one should stop using that breast um, or not not nurse in the future once the process is resolved. And they resolve pretty quickly. They really do resolve pretty quickly. Um, we would like now like to move on to our final five. This is our segment where we ask you some rapid fire, quick personal questions to have our listeners kind of get to know you a little more personally. So I'm going to start off, uh, start you off with our very first question. Do you have a favorite book um, or what are you currently reading? <laughs> I have many favorite books. Oh my gosh. I read novels uh, incessantly. Um, right now I'm reading something called, I think it's called let the great world spin. And it's a story uh, set in the late uh, 70s, the day that the guy tight roped across across the uh, World Trade Center. And it's a parallel story of many lives in New York City that day. It's absolutely fabulous. Um, just before that, I, I love uh, I love Alice Monroe short stories. I read uh, I just not too long ago read Ann Patchett's uh, State of Wonder. And actually, I was kind of late in reading uh, Cutting for Stone, but I read that uh, a few months ago. I find, um, I will say that I'm a novelist. I'm a novel reader. I, I rarely read politics, self-improvement, uh, you know, uh, history. I'm a, I think I use reading as um, as a, a, a way of, not, not escape, but just a way of taking me to another place. It really, I find it very calming 
It's one of those things I cannot wait, in all honesty, when I retire, I will become one of these never stop reading kind of people, I think. But uh, And I read on airplanes, and um, uh, so those, that's what I'm doing right now. Everyone's, and I also have a trip coming up to Egypt, so I'm, going, I'm reading about a trip down the Nile, for example. So Great. I'm, I'm always impressed by uh, people who are as busy and as accomplished as, as you are that still find time to uh, read novels. It's something I... I haven't quite find the, found the balance for in, uh, in, in my life yet, but I hope to get there. So that leads, yes. nicely, leads nicely to number two. Uh, do you have a, a favorite uh, trip or, or vacation um, that stands out in your memory that you, uh, you could share with us? <laughs> I love to travel, too. I'm a, I really do. Uh, I'm thrilled to travel. Um, it's hard to pick. Uh, very, very challenging to pick one. Um, we do have um, I do have a special attachment to uh, Italy. Uh, there's a place down on the tippy toe of Italy that uh, is practically like a second home to me now, and it's a little tiny village uh, called Gaiato. And, uh, and we go every summer um, with some friends, and we liked it so much we bought a little tiny, little, I mean, we're talking a little tiny, tiny little place. Um, and, uh, and I've gotten to know the people in the town very well. They're just wonderful. I'm trying to learn to speak Italian because they don't speak English. And um, I think it's a, a place of great comfort, and uh, um, and I feel like I contribute something to the community, but I also get so much out of it. Um, I love uh, ancient uh, history places. You know, I love uh, places like Kyoto, and uh, who doesn't love Paris? And you know, I could go to, you know, there's a million places. They don't. I can't say I've got one or two that stand out. I loved Machu Picchu. Ooh, that was wonderful. I think places that sort of reflect the the that really on a their front you know front page sort of eke out what their cultural heritage is are, are sort of my favorite places. And there are also places that are kind of quiet. I also prefer places that are quiet. I don't necessarily like big noisy places. Although I love New York. Um, so speaking of noise, do you listen to music in the OR? And if not, what or if so, what would we find if we grabbed your iPod or whatever you use to listen to music? Yeah, I have a pretty quiet OR. I don't have music, um, and uh, there's not a lot of chatter. Part of it's because I have a pretty soft voice, you know, and uh, I want people to be able to hear me. Um, if I'm doing a big combination case with uh, reconstructive surgeons or something, and we have a big team in the room and they want to listen to music, I'm, I'm okay with that. But it, if it's on, it's on at very low volume. And in my room, it's not on at all if I'm just there by myself with my residents. Um, I have... Um, if you were to, I'm not very good at technology, but I do have a few things on there. Um, I always have, uh, I always have opera, which has been a great gift I've received here in Houston. We have a magnificent Houston Grand Opera here, so I always have some of the more accessible operas on there, the Puccini's and um, uh, the one Beethoven opera Fidelio is on there. I listen to that all the time, um, and uh, I love country music. Uh, I listen to a lot of country music, and um, I also um, can never get enough of uh, Bruce Springsteen or Bob Dylan. Our next question would be, what would you do if um, not medicine? Well, I would be if I, <laughs> that's pretty easy actually, believe it or not. I'd be, a, I'd be, a, I'd be a hippie, you know, I hate to say it, but I would have my horses, my garden, my dogs, my, uh, my, uh, you know, I, grow my own food, make my own clothes. You know, I, I do all that. Kind of, I, I make fabulous cheeses, believe it or not. I, I love to cook. I I would be a, I guess I would say sort of a homesteader. I keep bees. You know, I do all those things that are just make me feel kind of very connected to the earth. And um, I would, I was actually going to, when I went to college, I was actually thinking maybe I'll go to ag school, you know, because ag school would kind of immerse me in, that in a more informed kind of way and my my now husband my then to be husband when we were freshmen in college um said I'm not going to live on a farm so that was the end of ag school but I gotta say all my life I've been crawling my way way back to that and um I can see that in my future someday so I think uh he would say it was probably the biggest mistake he ever made in his life but uh I think um I think that's uh that would that would easily have fulfilled me, and I would, you know, I would do some 
I would have made pottery and, you know, I do all those things. I'm still, I still do all those things. I do all those things that a child of the sixties who was connected to the earth would have wanted to do and, and volunteer in different ways and different causes. Wow. That's a, that's, that's awesome. I think uh, that, that I know of, you're probably the first beekeeper we've had on behind the knife. That's very cool. <laughs> Oh, it's really fun. It's very zen. It's really fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Last question, number five. Uh, so if we were to look into your, if we were to grab your white coat right now, what would we find in the pockets? What would you find on the lapel? What's in your white coat? Yeah, no, there's really not that much. I've got, I always have a, a pen or two. Uh, I usually have some lip gloss and uh, I have my name tag, but that's about it. I really don't have my iPhone. Of course I have my phone, you know, but uh I really don't load up my pockets with too much. Um, I don't have pins on my on me or anything like that. Uh, I should, but I just I always lose them, so I just don't bother. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Dr. Bass. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Until next time, dominate the day.